Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom, and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the great honor to interview Dr. Andalip Kelgari, who is the Assistant Superintendent for Human Resources at Evanston Skokie School District 65. One day I was in a conference and this gentleman approached me and we just started talking, such an approachable guy. I can't wait to learn from him. Dr. Andalip Kelgari, who are you? Good morning, good morning, or good afternoon, good evening. Hello, I'm Andalip Kilgadi. Um, I'm a person who's dedicated their life, their career to being of service to children and communities and to really uh, create opportunities for unity and diversity and justice. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, so tell us about your professional trajectory up to this point. Sure. Um, you know, I, I am... Really, in the at this current state, I'm a assistant superintendent, as you said, in District 65, where I'm focused on human resources and development. And I have to say that in some many ways, this has uh, been an exciting experience for me to be in the human resource department, where we're strategically focused on human development. And while there are the technical and very important aspects of legal and compliance-related issues in human resources department. What's exciting for me is that I get to be a part of growing educators. And in 65, we have started in the last two years a teacher residency program that's strategically growing, essentially, our own core of educators who are focused on anti-racist practices. That's really um, looking towards excellence of children, um, uh, looking to grow children's excellence, uh, particularly students of color. Now, that resonates with me personally. I was not the most successful student. It's hard to believe. I, uh, I, I, I struggled all through elementary and high school and middle school and really found that it was really the community that surrounded me at home or in, my, in the relationships I was able to find that kind of sustained me throughout my learning experience. And that really propelled me to discover the value of what's the community that surrounds an educator that allows them to find the best in themselves. Um, and without that community, whether it's from the principal to the school setting, that teacher can really struggle. Um, I, I grew up in West Africa. Um, I might, I'm just going to flow here, Dr. Martinez, but yeah, I grew up in West Africa in Togo, Kenya, and I was blessed with really diverse settings of learning and growing. I would say that my my toughest spaces were really in the elementary school spaces where I was invisible to my educators. I felt often um, unseen. I was one of the only children of color in that space. I'm biracial. My mom is black. My dad is Iranian. I identify as black, Persian, and have spent uh, my life really living in many, many different spaces. And so when I finally made it to university, um, I decided that it was it was really my ma mission to really create spaces that were equitable and of excellence for children. Wow, a lot to unpack there. Um, let me let me continue. Uh, let's continue in the trajectory, and I yes. will go then 
uh, <clears throat> before HR, uh, assistant soup of HR, uh, what, were, what, what did you do? So for four years, I had the bounty of supporting principals. My, I was the assistant superintendent of schools. I focused, um, I was the direct coach, uh, advisor, supervisor for 15 schools in our school district in Evanston and really uh, led everything from restored practices, climate culture, incident planning to all the various strategic initiatives that were related to principal, including rolling out our equity initiative. Um, at that point, our board had adopted an equity policy and so worked very closely with the, the board, the superintendent and the board in rolling that out. Prior to that, I had one of my most fun jobs to date, uh, principal for six years. Although I will say that the principal is the most uh, great, grateful position. I guess you could say you find a lot of gratitude in them, but it's also one of the most challenging. I call it the yin and yang of public education. You're going to start the day with with a high and you're going to end the day with probably one of the most painful lows just because of the nature of working with humans on such a close, intimate level. And so for me, um, principal, prior to that, I was an assistant principal for five years. And then I had the bounty of being a literacy coach for two years. And I also then taught third grade, sixth grade, and kindergarten is where I started my, my, my first digs as a teacher in New York City prior to moving to Chicago. Beautiful. Thank you for, for walking us through that trajectory. Let's start peeling that onion. Um, Tell me about that is can you revisit that experience uh, when you move into the United States um, and in terms of also and what advice would you give to people who are just arriving? So great thing. Um, so I didn't expect that question and I love it. I uh, advice. So the experience, you know, I was the child of an American growing up in West Africa. And so having visited the US on these very short vacations to see my grandmother who gave me cornbread and ribs and like amazing meals, right? So you're on vacation, right? You're young, you're a kid. Those were my memories of America, right? So there I'm surrounded in New Orleans with my, my in-laws and my family and it's just great. So when the news came that our family was being exiled from Kenya, which is a story for another day. Um, I was so excited. I was like, yes, America. Now, I was 13. I was sad because I was going to miss all my friends. But on the flip side, I was like, we're going to the U.S. And so here I land in a city. I'm now in a school. I went from a school of 200 to a New Orleans public school of 1,500 students. Um, my, my host student, which I thought, so this is the advice if you're leading a school and you're getting people who are arriving, give those children a partner. So Tron was my partner. He was from Vietnam and he was the person assigned to kind of show me the ropes. And I still remember sitting there in seventh, sixth grade and eating lunch. And he goes, lunch is over. I'm like, what? I just sat <laughs> down. <laughs> so I would just say that uh, give children a Buddy, give somebody that they are assigned to on the very first day. That was the best thing that they did at McMaine is I had a buddy on my first day of school and he became my friend. And thank God for Tron. I made it through my first week. Um, he didn't tell me that 
standardized testing requires you to fill in the circle, not check them. And so my first, my first <laughs> F on the test in America was when I took the test and I did check boxes and the teacher would not allow me to retake the test. Welcome to America. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. No, it is important, right? Because um, um, all those experiences ground us. Can you tell us? Um, you mentioned about working with with equity efforts for those that that don't know about it or want to learn more. Um, can you summarize it? Uh, why uh, these efforts of equity are important? Well, number one, if we're not uh, promoting systemically and internally, so I would say both within your system, but also within the individual, a posture and efforts to really confront injustice um, in terms of how we include all people, you know, uh, people of color, African-Americans, Latinos, um, Latinx, uh, LGBT members of the LGBTQ community, if we're not structurally confronting that, we're really, we're, we're not, we're, we're behind. And the reason I say that is because it's 2022, close to 2023. And I, I remember when our board in Evanston Skokie School District adopted an equity policy as a result of some very uh, damning research that for those of us who knew, we knew, it was like, oh, well, we know this, right? But for the, for, for the system at large, it was a real wake-up call when the researcher, Sean Reardon, identified that in Evanston, the performance of white students was some of the highest in the country compared to Berkeley, D.C., other places. But then the performance of Black and Latinx students was so low. And this gap put us in this group of elites, right? And, and so it was really a, a wake-up call for that community to say, we got to do something. And I'm going to tell you, Dr. Martinez, it was really powerful when they put the they put confronting racist systemic practices, institutionalized racism as a core issue behind this lack of performance. Now, those are those I won't say those are easy words, but it's easier to write that and to say it than to start to change your practices, your policies, your beliefs to be able to mirror that kind of belief system, right? Because yes. that means that there's going to be change for the better for all. We often think that change in this regard is going to be for the black students or the not. No, it's going to be change that's good for all children. Yes, absolutely. And then let me ask you, um, for, for those who are not still in that bandwagon, Mm -hmm. Where should they start informing themselves? Is there a book, a, a, a film, a, a, a podcast you recommend like that that identifies this? Because on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I do notice that many of us are speaking different languages in terms of equity, right? Mm -hmm. For some equity means the same thing. And for some equity means what you are talking about. Uh, any, any point of start? Yeah, I'm abs absolutely. Uh, I would recommend everybody Glenn Singleton's book, uh, Courageous Conversations About Race. Um, and it's actually very focused on education space. And so his work, I would say, really provides everybody with the language and some shared definitions and some very strategic 
pathways and processes and procedures. Lots of bullet points yeah. <laughs> along the way uh, to, the, to the spirit of your show in terms of productivity. It does give a lot of practical uh, tips to really get the ball rolling. What I would say is the other work that I would I would position is really the, I think Brene Brown's values around vulnerability and the idea, not vulnerability, but really the value-based leadership work, um, whether it's strengths finders or whatever you want to choose. But I think centering your work around these two ideas, courageous conversations about race and the need to confront systemic injustice and racism. And at the same time, a deep commitment to value-based work. Um, can be both anchoring tools. Dare to Lead is a great book in that regard um, by Brene Brown. And I think that Dare those could juxtapositions. My wife is a child psychologist, um, Dr. Irma uh, Kelgadi. She was for so many years, but Dr. Irma Kelgadi, and she has done some of her own research around using those two books together and yes. um, has yielded a lot of growth for those. Beautiful. And my favorite quote about about um, um, Brene Brown's book is it goes something like that: "When you are not in control of your emotions, your emotions drive shotgun." Whoa! Uh, and that's like so impactful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go. Uh, when you transition from teacher to principal, and from principal to HR, uh, if you could go back to that first year in that job, what are the things that caught your attention that perhaps you were ignoring uh, as a teacher when you became a principal and, and as a assistant soup when you uh, ended up being a principal? Does that question make sense or should I rephrase it? Yeah. Um, so my first, I'm gonna say, I'm actually going to say from teacher to literacy coach because literacy coach was my first position where I was not in a classroom and the shift from being responsible for 25, 30 lives and their direct growth as a literacy coach, as a principal, as assistant superintendent, we are responsible for the growth of all those children. There's a significant difference when they come into your classroom every single day. Yeah. Now, when you are out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. So my advice was uh, very quickly discovered as a literacy coach because I was in a school where all those individuals had left. All the, mm -hmm. all, all the individuals who had been my friends had left. And so I was one of the few people remaining in that building. I see. And so all my friends left, but now I was with, with more veteran teachers. And it was my responsibility to support those teachers as a literacy coach. And I was so concerned about the relationships, which was important, and my value, and to, your, to this idea of imposter syndrome, like, do I belong here? I spent too much time on that, and I should have spent more time on focusing on the data and the learning that children were achieving or not achieving. Um, what was the craft? What was the skill? So centering my focus on them, which is really, we don't have much luxury when you're a teacher. Yeah. But when you somehow, when you step out of the classroom, you suddenly become very aware of all the other 
uh, discourses and relationships and the building and placement and do I belong? I mean, we feel that as teachers, actually, I take that back. When we're hired, we're like, oh God, when the principal walks in, are they gonna fire me because they see me? <laughs> <laughs> or am I gonna get the teacher of the year award, right? But I would say that you, you, you have to be very aware um, that you're still just as responsible for those lives and those classrooms the way you were when you were a teacher. And that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Did being a literacy coach, uh, you say was fundamental for you when you became a principal? I, it was, it was because I think that that angst, that focus on data, that focus on, on systems and the importance of building a culture to drive change and the power of, both the relationship, but also the substance of those, what the focus of those relationships were, it became very helpful to me then. So when I was a principal, I applied those same philosophies, right? Which is building a culture of learning, uh, helping teachers set norms, gather their values, identify um, how we were gonna learn together and then implementing that. Um, and that became a very important part of my I guess you could say my tenure as an educator, I mean, as an educator principal, yeah. where people spoke to that, people who entered my building, both as teachers um, who wanted to join my building when I was a principal, who said, hey, I want to come. I hear you all are really creating a culture of learning. That's what they were looking for. Mm. And then and one last question about, about this. We have got, you're such an interesting um, interviewer, interviewee. What was one thing that you think um, went well in terms of how your life changes from being a principal to being an HR uh, person or assistant superintendent? This is something that I aspire. What changes for the good that you're like, oh, wow, this is very good. And what changes in terms of, mm, I miss doing A, B, or C? So what changes for the good is that you get to quickly be a part of guiding systemic change. And you have an opportunity much more quickly to hear the voices of educators, the voices of principals across the system and enact change quickly that can help influence their lives for the better very quickly. I um I miss the community element. I I I actually think that that is one of the most difficult or different spaces that you don't expect when you step into the when you step out of the school-based leadership work is that that sense of community. Now, that's because you want to really center the roles and the lives of those educators. It's not it's in some ways a self-effacing role because You don't want parents and children to have relationships with Andalim. You want them to have relationships with their teacher, with their principal, because the research says that that's the most important part. Yes. And so there is an element of you want to move into the background. And one of my dear colleagues, Rafael Obofemi, says, I don't want to be known. I want the school to be known. I want the principal to be known. I want the teacher to be known. If you know my name, then there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I love that that posture, which is that our job is to really be a, a helpmate to the schools. Love it. Thank you so much. So, liking back to the future and the leap, 
if you could go back to any of the positions you have held in your life, what is one or two things you will tell yourself? Systems, systems, systems. Uh, identify the, the, the pattern, the routines, the, the people. Uh, so, you know, my, my superintendent and I really subscribe to this is powerful practices. What are the practices um, that you want to really identify and build as routines into your day-to-day -day work? and then stick to those. Um, in District 65, for example, in my first year as assistant superintendent of school, I mean, I'm sorry, um, last year when my superintendent joined the district, we spent a lot of time uh, building what we call the six systems for really ac continuous improvement and excellence. And these six systems, um, they really center instruction. And so, but it's really through identifying, you know, what are the standards? What's the data? What are the, the professional learning communities that you're engaging? What's the formative assessment you're using? What are the intervention works? And then what's the reflection you do? So really naming the system you're going to use, how are you going to measure your use of that system? Mm. And then being committed to applying that every day of your practice and it's to be honest with you it's really it becomes like the pillars in a building right if you don't put all the pillars into your building or all the i'm not pop my kids i wish they were here they would break that it's this you know it's all the various you know parts of your foundation we often think oh lay the foundation we say foundation like it's one word Right. It is a foundation, but there are multiple components for that foundation that create that structure called the foundation. If you don't put all the parts in, it's not going to be a solid foundation. And so I actually think the word foundation doesn't reflect all the elements of what it takes. And so in a school, what I would tell my former self is visit the classrooms, give feedback. That's a pillar coordinate the resources so your teachers have access to ready data and build a, a, a routine where your educators get to access that data regularly, reflect on it, give feedback to each other, build lesson plans that reflect the goals and then implement and then reflect again and then try again. And so again, another routine within our six systems. Um, I call them routines because at the end of the day, there are, there are, like you said, practices, things we have to do over and over and over again. Now, when you do that, you start to get movement. And one of my favorite books, if I may, um, is really the research of continuous improvement by Penny Sebring and Rick Osworth and um, forgetting the Big guy, Tony Bright, they did this research in Chicago and they and the, the this book about continuous improvement that really situates the work of the five essentials um, in Illinois names how at the core of all these routines and systems is trust and relationship building. Mm -hmm. And that trust is the heat that kind of coalesces all these various elements that you have. So a system alone without the people and the love and the relationships and the trust that you have to 
system daily build and contribute to and say good morning and hello and i'm mad at you but i'm still going to acknowledge you and love you because you're a part of this community indispensable can't do absolutely. it without that absolutely let me let me add, you just made me think about something you know when you were an assistant principal you were supporting a principal and then you become the principal and all of a sudden Everybody goes principal, 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 right? So your mindset has to kind of change. But then <laughs> I want to assume that when you become an assistant superintendent, in many ways, you you become, again, that assistant principal who is supporting <laughs> that principal. Am I reading this correctly? You're getting it's, it. You're right? If so, what changes or what advice would you have? Because... I, for example, my wife sometimes tells me, you are not my principal, right? When I'm telling her something, uh, right? So when you change that, that, that job from principal being the top, everybody goes to you and you become the system. So what changes, how your mindset changes? Did you ever had a mistake where you realize, oh, I'm no longer the, the main honcho here. I have to ask, uh, what, what thoughts do you have about this? I don't know. Is this a G-rated show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, I used to always say I never want an ass in my job title again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> when I left being the assistant principal. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I apologize for any No, no, no. Hilarious. But in my use of the ASS word and to my kids who may listen to this one day. So I... Um, <laughs> I, I I would say this. Ultimately, doesn't our posture have to be the same? Like, doesn't our posture have to be the same? The only difference is the weight and the burden of responsive of projected responsible. We're still as responsible as the principal when you're the assistant principal. And that was my advice when I became a principal to my former self as an assistant principal. I actually called and apologized to my all my principals. When I became a principal, I called them the first week. And to anybody who I'd led, who I had uh, been under, and I said, I am so sorry. I did not know. I did not, I just did not realize. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm leaning into the screen, eyes wide open here, because I I had not expected the burden of awareness it's like your pores suddenly breathe open and you're suddenly like oh my gosh this is serious biz like not even just like this is heavy you know and i remember calling my former person like hey man wow i didn't realize it was like being a mall cop and suddenly you're a police officer like the difference is so it's like having the same job and somebody put, puts a kaleidoscope in front of your eyes and puts on goggles and you're supposed to do the same gig you know so number one my advice is that treat your assistant principalship or assistant superintendent role with the level the same level of burden of responsibility and care as you would if you were suddenly now the principal or superintendent. The sense of ownership we have to have about a school. You're not, I, I, you know, so when people ask me, well, you're assistant superintendent, they say, you know, when I apply for superintendencies, you know, or when I've sought them, I've said, 
um, I've had years of experience as a superintendent. And I says, well, how, but you're assistant. He's like, yeah, but I approach the position with a level of seriousness and, and care. And now I'm not naive in that thinking that there is the same level of pressure. And at the end of the day, my superintendent carries the weight of that community and the burden in a way that I can't feel until I assume that role. Yes. Um, Rachel Resnick, who was one of my favorite principals in Chicago public schools, um, because, and I only got to work with her for six months, but she would always, she'd say to me, you know, you can't build the muscles of a principal until you're a principal. Wow. Now you're, you're building all the muscles you have for being a literacy coach, assistant principal, but you won't assume those muscles till you're actually in that role. Um, Very profound. Onto, I'm taking here copious notes until you're on the roll. Wow, that's that's profound. Thank you, Ndalib. Before we continue, let's celebrate the Teach Better community. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, and Dalib, uh, I'm having such a great time. Uh, I hope that you too. Let's yeah. talk about books. Like reading books is such a privilege. If you had to give one fiction book that is your favorite and one nonfiction book that is your favorite, uh, which one are those and why? Wow. So I would say uh, I like when a author is able to bring words together in a way that just pierces you and creates images and takes you on this journey. And so a book by James Baldwin that is always still at the top of my list and I need to read it again is Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone. And I read that a long time ago, but I would say it's still at the top of my book. Sometimes I just pick it up and I won't reread it, but I'll just pick up a page, wherever that page might be, and just read the words. And the way he's able to take you into a journey of an individual whose life is so um, intense. I mean, I can still picture his character like the heart attack, you know, and just anyway, I, I just James Baldwin, man, he's able to hit it. And, and I know his, he's become very contemporary, popular in our in our research and our work around race, race and lots of quotes of his. But his prose is like it's like color purple quality, you know, like he is like, bam. So that's the, that's my next book to, to read. Thank you for suggesting. What about nonfiction? Nonfiction. So I thought a lot about this book, uh, I mean, about this question. And there's just so many books that I, that come to for mind. Sure. But I would say uh, one of the, one of the big ones is the book I mentioned, and I don't know why I'm, the title's escaping me, but, but it's by it's about continuous improvement. It's one of the, the it's, it's a book that essentially was, came out in 2010, 2011, and essentially captures the research. We now refer to the five essentials. Yeah. But it was a book, uh, the story of continuous improvement in Chicago. 
and it's a very it's a research book. It's used in a lot of foundational classes and in in graduate programs that look at leadership. And the reason why I like the book is they go very much into the technical aspect of school change. And there are a lot of books since then have built their research around this and like either because you could call them kind of like uh, bags of potato chip books about like the research. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this book really does an amazing job of synthesizing, but gives you such nuggets of depth. Um, everything that I would say that guides my work, my framework for school change situates in that. And I would say that Dr. Horton's, whether he names it or not, I think that his work really is reflective of the basis of that same research, which is that you've got to have essentially these, these, you know, your organizational design, you've got to have trust, you have to have effective leadership, you have to have ambitious instruction, you have to have effective leaders, you have to have um, a supportive community, you have to have a supportive, um, uh, meaningful secondary supports that are coming into the schools. One of the things that I did that was totally connected to this research, this book, how important it was to me is that I started a non-for-profit Well, I was co-founder um, for an organization called Books and Breakfasts in Evanston. And it had been a prior entity, but we recreated it myself and a number of fam parents. Kim Hammock is the executive director. It was really the, the lead founder in this work. Um, Books and Breakfasts, we started. And why? Because there was a need to create support systems that were directly aligned and dynamically connected to the school's mission for student achievement for students of color. Back in 2011, there were really no direct partners in the elementary school space for us in Evanston. And seeing that that gap really propelled me as a principal to, like, who does that in their first or second years of principal? You're busy, right? Yeah. I saw such a need for support. And in Chicago, we, we talked a lot about that, right? Like, what are the clubs? How are you aligning your clubs to support your mission for equity? Mm. That was very much present in Chicago. Um, Michael Johnson and I had been I had been the assistant principal at school on the South Side. We'd done a, worked on creating summer programs, and we just knew the value of these kinds of programming to align for schools, and it was just absent in my school. There were a lot of clubs, a lot of things, but none of them were targeting or... I hate that word. We're, we're prioritizing the needs of children of color, particularly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I almost wish that we had like schools that were conducive to continuous learning as well, right? Because people like you and I are reading research and on top of books and stuff like that, but usually, um, Eight out of ten people that I talk to, they are not they are not reading or they are not on top of things. How do we create systems that like almost get a Marshall report on a weekly basis saying, hey, this is the most updated things that you should be aware of? How do we create a culture like that? Or is just not possible, um, uh, at least in a way that we can imagine? Uh, you know, I am... Um... It's possible. It's it's shifting how you you work. 
um, when my superintendent, and I, this is to your point, when he became superintendent for Evanston Public Schools, and in the first six months, and I tease him all the time, I was like, who, like, who are you? Like, he, he came in and he had a long checklist of things he wanted to do before he had even started. July 1 is a start day. So in January, we're getting lists of things that we need to be doing. <laughs> and I'm like, Devon, right? Devon Horton. Yeah, Dr. Okay. Devon Horton. Mm-hmm. So I always tease him. But one of the things he did was he started to put his vision out there and his priorities. And they were all centered on evaluate, identify, and there was a real need there. But one thing that he did, and this is to your question, is we had, we would meet weekly um, before he started. And we were reading a book and we, we were, we were, we were studying and I'm going to have to look up the book before we close out, but we were studying a book about principles and leadership change. And I actually think that the, the tool is there. It's, I mean, even simple book clubs, gatherings, circles, get together with colleagues. Is it a priority? Um, and and even if it's not something that we've done, so I think there, it's a simpler process. It's for me, it's the difference between you know, like I've been going to conferences more recently, right? So Dr. Horton prioritizes that his cabinet attends conferences and go and learn. It's not that any other superintendent has never said that to me, but he actually makes a point to remind us. Last year, in his second year in person, he he, he signed us all up to go to the I conference. Um, I had never been. And wow, what a learning experience. What a rich conference in terms of little nuggets of ideas and lots of you meet board members, principals, superintendents. I mean, it's, it was great. But he made it a priority, right? So if your culture that you've adopted as a principal or that we adopt as work, you know, calls workers, right, yeah, in the yeah. system, if we're not surrounded in a culture that's saying you must invest in your own continuous learning, either somebody's going to force you there, which is what he said. He says, no, everybody got to go. And so now this year, year three of his leadership, like I've gone, I went to NABSI, the National Alliance of Black School Educators this year. Awesome conference. I attended the ASCD, ASCD conference. Why are they awesome? Because I'm with peers. I'm hearing their stories. I'm hearing about books. I'm, I'm hearing their authentic challenges. I'm hearing um, new strategies to support educators and principals. And so um, I'm sharpening my sword, so to speak. Right. So I, I, um, I would say, let's do it. You know, uh, I think we often say, let's do it. But then we, we get pulled into the business of our day to day and we don't realize how refreshing it is to talk to each other to to hear other stories to even tell our own story and suddenly be like oh i didn't know i thought that you know and suddenly you're like wow okay wow and Dalib, thank you uh would you say um that is the biggest asset of your superintendent that he encourages everybody to be in that process of continuous learning and, and pushing the envelope he puts a premium on that absolutely it is one of his greatest strengths and He just won, uh, well, not won, but he was just um, honored. The Nabe one, right? Yeah, the National Superintendent of the Year Award, um, well-deserved for lots of reasons. But one of the things I would say is that you, 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 when you find a leader who is surrounded by people that he has grown 
and committed to and mentored and continues to be passionate about that, it speaks a lot, it speaks volumes to their character. Beautiful. Thank you. I I much appreciate that. So a broad question, Andalib, who do you learn from? Well, I, I just uh I think well <clears throat> I learned from teachers. I want to say that first and foremost, I have realized that some of my toughest lessons as a leader, a school leader, principal, and now, you know, and now in my superintendent, assistant superintendency role, I would say that a lot of my learning comes from educators. And mm. and it it often you you have a hard time we have a hard time listening sometimes as leaders because we say, well, I was a teacher. I know what's needed, right? No, things may change the, the current milieu. And so mm -hmm. I learned from educators and we are, I have really been excited to be part of partnered building with our union. And so our union president is Maria Barroso. Before that was Mike Cruley and then Paula Zelinsky. And I would say with each of these union leaders, I was fortunate to have them and consider them partners in the work. And I learned a lot from them. So that's one I would say from educators and especially um, union leaders who really, we often, if you, if you listen, you can gain so much strength and vision from the work that they're guiding. That's number one. Number two, I would say my, my wife, my, 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 my wife teaches me a lot. I am. Um, I she and I have known each other now for almost twelve years, and actually, it's almost fourteen years. And uh, she's somebody I learned a lot from. And so I think having, well, I, I know, I know that having a partner in life who's really has her own sense of values and vision and their own body of research and knowledge informs my life greatly every single day. Right. So who you surround yourself with. Right. And so <laughs> we all have to think of as friends, but like my wife's my friend, you know, she's my dearest friend. My yes. mm, Those are the best marriages when you can yeah. also become best friends. Yes. So we started there and it's a, it's a learning process. We got little ones at home. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lot to go through. So yeah. that's um, and then I would say that. I was fortunate to pursue a doctorate. And I would say that I would recommend the experience for anybody, even if it takes you seven years, which it took me seven years uh, to complete, because you really build relationships with other leaders, other um, educators who are in the field and from the research itself. And so mm -hmm. to be engaged in that discourse, to be in that continuous improvement cycle, I learned from from academics, from the the other people in those programs, from the books, the research, there's so much to be gained from that exercise, even if it's to be able to reflect and then reject it. Mm -hmm. um, and to say, no, that's not accurate. That's not reflective of the excellence we need in our schools. So. Absolutely. You know, talking about the doctorate, uh, uh, it's such a, you know, uh, It's, it's a pleasure to to take time to to go deep into something. What did you ended up going deeper on in your doctorate? And what advice do you have for someone who is either a teacher, principal, assistant, soup, who says, you know what, I'm gonna spend this amount of money and do a doctorate? What advice do you have? 
Great question. And I just realized we need to do a podcast on you. I almost want to ask you those same questions, Dr. Because <laughs> we have not spent much time together. So I, I look forward to your podcast. Maybe I'll, hey. come, I'll come in and interview when you. When you create yours, I can be one of your guests. Okay. Um, so my advice would be, number one, do it. Um, the pursuit of, of learning in this regard and can only inform your school and your community and your 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 experience as a professional um particularly if you're interested in schools so that's number one number two where i went deeper and as i really got excited about trust and thinking about how trust influences the systems and how do we understand trust how do we identify markers of trust and then and then um, how that informs then your ability to then move change. And so I did analysis on really thinking about how critical thinking and um, showed up in schools for students particularly, and then how lack literacy metrics like vocabulary, how do those influence our ability to then move critical thinking along if you don't have some of the fundamentals required for even literacy involved. So, so those two were really my areas of focus in my research. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And for the people who apply, you said to do it, but let, let's talk about yes. dissertation, right? And that's a little bit of productivity here. Um, if you had to go back and do it all over again, what would you do better? Uh, so one is develop the routine or the practice of writing early. Um, in your program. So if I could do it again, I probably would have said, okay, towards the end, I just didn't have a choice, right? And so I was up every morning at like 5 a.m. writing and working and tinkering and all that. I wish I developed that practice a lot earlier as a routine, and then it would have been less painful. <laughs> yeah. um, and I would have moved faster. So that's the one thing I would, I would encourage people to do. Beautiful. And, Thank uh, you. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, were you going to say something else? No, 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 no. That's okay. It. Beautiful. That's the only thing that if we were in person, these interruptions would be less. But since we're in Zoom, uh, but the listeners of the show will understand. So, who is or who are your biggest influences? So, number one, I would say that. My biggest influences, number one, the, the mentors I've had, you know, the, the, this idea that we stand on the shoulders of giants. So people who have been in my life from the beginning. Um, so in when I was in my university program, there was an author, Sonia Nieto, who I met. She was a professor at UMass Amherst, who's, who really encouraged me to pursue education. I had been in a political, my doc, bachelor was in social thought, political economy. Mm -hmm. And I had been tinkering around education. And so she said, why don't you go and visit schools? Why don't you get into the practice and see what it's like for yourself? And so Sonia really uh, had that influence. Uh, Lucy Calkins, uh, it's kind of funny to say now because she's kind of like this controversial, incredible guru of writing and literacy and maybe not. So uh, she was my professor when I was in grad school in New York. And she taught the writing class and she really helped understand just 
some just practical life, right? You're 23 years old, 24 years old. And so adulting. So what are, what are all the little things you got to know about net, networking and navigating the professional field of education? And so she really, I loved her classes just because she was this like intense personality, but also really cared for us as students. And I, I, I definitely consider her um as one of those people in my life. Um, another big influence in my life was Dr. Billy Roberts, who I came to know through my, I'm a Baha'i, which is my, my, my faith. Um, and he was a, he's a psychologist by trade, a mentor to many men um, across the world, really. And so Dr. Billy Roberts was one of the mentors who really influenced my life. When I was 16 years old, uh, my mom connected us and it's really uh, speaks to the value of black men having black mentors. And so he actually came and visited me. You know, he was a successful professional and he came to our house, uh, picked me up in a car and he actually let me drive his car before I had my license. <laughs> I drove the drive. I didn't go down the street, but we did drive. We had a long driveway at that point. We lived in the woods in Massachusetts, so I was like the one. I mean, it was crazy. Anyway, that's another day. But so he let me drive his BMW, you know, oh, and I was like, what? You know, a young man, you know, like to do that. Like, that's crazy. So so uh, Billy Roberts has been a he's, he was a, a huge influence in my life um, in terms of my my efforts and my push and my survival in this world. Um, Beautiful. Can you, uh, for the listeners of the show and for me who are curious, can you tell us a little bit about your faith? Absolutely. Um, so the the Baha'i faith was established in 1863. Actually, and the first time it found its way into the West, called the West as in North America, was in 1892 here in Chicago, where at the World's Fair, it was introduced. And the, the, the World's Fair in Chicago they hosted the World Parliament of Religions in 1892. And so at that point was the first time the idea of the Baha'i faith was brought to America, which is what they referred to as the West. And, you know, then, so I, and so the Baha'i faith has at its, as its core, the, the belief that there's one creator, a noble God. The second important belief of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity and that our creator, a noble essence, desired that the world be really uni unified into one interdependent world that's focused on unity and diversity. And so we maintain our qualities of who we are, but we are connected. And then the last one is that there's really one faith, that, the, that this, as there is one creator, this one creator has sent us throughout time these these belief systems to guide our development and to bring us closer to this one creator. And so as a Baha'i, I believe in the, the fundamental, I believe in Christ. I consider myself a Christian. Now, this is inside, not all Baha'is listen to gospel music, but I love gospel music, right? And when I hear gospel uh, or Christian music, it speaks to me just because I love the sound But also, I have a deep connection to Christ, and I've read the Bible. And so Baha'u'llah's teachings, Baha'u'llah was the founder of the Baha'i faith. Baha'u'llah translates into the glory of God. And Baha'u'llah taught that the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. And he also said this is a value to your show and productivity that, um, that 
every person's goal is to carry forward an ever advancing civilization. And so my purpose in my work and in my life is to help advance society, to improve society. I mean, that's lofty. I mean, like talk about ambitious, right? <laughs> but wow. if you think about your craft and your values and what drives them, this idea that we are we are all on this mission, right? And it's not a it's not a it's a religious mission because that is my faith. Mm -hmm. But it's it's really more about the better. He doesn't say advanced society for Baha'is or for mm -hmm. Christians or Muslims or atheists. He says advanced society, right? So everybody's included, right? And so there is no, oh, I don't believe. Okay, great. I still consider you a brother. I'm sorry. You know, I don't have yeah. any. So. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I never heard of that faith. I'm definitely going to learn more. Um I, I, I would love to know about every single um, uh, religious faith because as we support students and faculty and staff, it's important to, to be aware of what, what we value, right? So we can find common uh, areas and find success. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's, let's dig into the productivity section. Um, do you think imposter syndrome is real? And if so, how do you face it? So it's, it, it, is it real? So I went to the academic side of it, like, I don't know if I read the research, so I can't argue. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so if you saw my face, uh, listeners, I was like, question mark, right? I haven't read the research to approve it. But... I will say that when somebody proposed the idea to me, I knew what it was, right? I understood it. And, and I can still recall, and I in when I read other teachers or heard other teachers experience the same thing, your first year teaching, your first couple months teaching, uh, I, I remember the research of like teachers, new teachers experiencing that feeling of like, I'm an imposter. I have been bequeathed this tremendous, incredible responsibility of teaching these kids. And I'm only 24 years of age. I've never, what do I know to teach these kids? You know, and so, so, uh, which is why I love this teacher residency program in our district. Mm -hmm. We want to give teachers, we want to get teachers over the hump before they're placed in front of kids. Maybe I shouldn't have been in that classroom. Honestly, I probably shouldn't have after one year, right? And so, uh, God help them. And I, I, please forgive me for all the mistakes I've made, you know? So I would say that, uh, again, I, I would say it's real. It, it's real in that it is human to become highly aware of all the ways that you are not achieving the standard that you believe to be true. And I think an imposter syndrome is particularly pronounced when the when I as I should say I or anybody else may experience it when you introduce race into that, and I think race pro propels because in an imposter syndrome, you you so as a person of color, particularly as a person who has multiple ethnicities, experience and cultures and everything. You're extremely aware of whether you're belonging in the space or not, 
or how you're included or influenced or brought in. So you're keenly aware of that. So if the culture has a racist or a or an exclusionary piece to it, you're going to feel that. And it's almost I'm holding my hands up like a buffer. You're going to feel that there's this buffer that you're almost not supposed to be in that space. And it's going to create this like, I think that's when somebody said to me, oh, imposter syndrome, you're experiencing imposter syndrome. I was like, oh, wow. Oh, that's what that that is. But I don't know if it's, I would almost reframe it. Is that like, is it an imposter syndrome or that those of us who are picking up in it are so intuitive, we're aware that there's something else in the culture and the influence that's making us feel like we don't belong. Mm -hmm. And we're actually intuiting the fact that there's something wrong with this space that needs to be improved. And that it's not us. And so society will say, oh, there's something wrong with you, Andalib. No, Andalib is fine. Andalib is realizing, and let's go back to the story of the teacher. Andalib is realizing that he is lacking some significant skills to be the most effective teacher. Right? And so why? So that it's in that moment that we have to recognize that the school, right? Why do they keep talking about the school the culture of the school has a great influence on the educator's success. You know, uh, I love Cynthia Coburn's work. She's a researcher at uh, Northwestern University, James Ballon. They do a lot of research around the, that, that, that the, who you place a teacher next to has just as much influence as all the other factors. And so why? Because that teacher gets to get messages, um, gets to learn in a way, in an accelerated way. And so, that imposter syndrome is brought down when that teacher then is guided and says, oh, I'm doing really well. I'm getting feedback. I'm experiencing it, right? Those are all, again, those pillars of a successful climate. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You know, and, and perhaps this is the area that we need to target when students like you who arrive as newcomers and you sit down in that classroom thinking, I am not enough. I mm. don't have enough of what students around me therefore I must be less and 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 uh when I arrived to this country I was feeling like that that I was less mm. and that contributed to my my slow growth as a professional because I was always working uh, with a tangent of oh I don't have this if I only yeah. look like this or my accent wasn't yes. like that right uh so thank you so much for sharing that very very empowering mm -hmm. so Good, good points there, Ephraim. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so um, being successful includes being on top of our productivity, but this means different things for different people. How does Andalip Calgary get organized and still live alive? Great question. I am. Um, so one, I would say that uh, keeping up with a daily organizer uh, writing down my priorities for the day. Uh, uh, I mentioned Raphael. He gave me this book by uh, um, there's an organizer that kind of sets your priorities for the day. Just having some kind of a journal that works for you. Um, that's one. Having a good system for note taking um, daily is important. Even if it's not something you're going to go back to. There you go. You've got your journal. So a good system for note taking daily is important. Uh, secondly, maintaining a calendar and making time for yourself in that calendar is really important. So if there are tasks that I know I have to get done, 
I keep putting them on my calendar until they're done. Uh, so blocking time. So weekly, daily, taking it, putting it on the calendar, making sure it shows up on the calendar and stays on the calendar, moving it. If I miss it because some urgent thing came up, move it to the next day. And so keeping that, you know, we, we, we schedule what we find important. You schedule your doctor's appointment. You schedule your, your, you know, do I schedule? I remember somebody said to me, schedule lunch. Well, I never did it. So I just stopped scheduling it. So <laughs> I get lunch when I can, but that's probably terrible advice. And every coach out there who's listening to sort of like, Oh my God, you gotta get lunch. <laughs> your lunch, you know, but you know how that goes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I do. So you get lunch when you get lunch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so let's dig in more. Tell us more about um, your daily organizer, right? And you'd be surprised. Many people don't know or have not seen or just heard about this and may think, oh, this is extra work. Why do I want to? Uh, for me, it has been transformational how it has impacted your work. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm pulling it out. I use what's called a full focus daily planner. Um, is one of the one I have. Let me see. Uh, this is yeah. I used to have the full focus planner. Absolutely. Tell us, tell us about it. Yeah, so I'm holding it up. Uh, the full focus planner. It it's got the day, and then it's got on it. It's got kind of like what are my daily big three, my most important three tasks for the day that I need to make sure mm -hmm. I get. Mm -hmm. on this particular day and then there are other tasks that i can list below and then there's a small section for notes so i've actually started using either my laptop or my my ipad for notes okay like things that are happening daily but then i use yes. this i i really like keeping this writing these things down i don't know what it is about the uh, the uh, the act of writing those things down in this notebook helps me lift those and get through them daily so that's one. learn learn you learn twice right when you write uh your notes yes your yes so that's one you know the other thing that i would say i've learned from my superintendent but i also had it as a practice but he he and i reflect on it he challenges me to continue to grow in this area which is both my own weekly reflections, but also the reflections of those who I su support and supervise. And so having them in our weekly check-in. So I set up routines where I meet with them weekly. <clears throat> and in those meetings, we review like what's working well, what are some challenges, and then what are your priorities for the week? And so if you are somebody or, you know, and like myself supporting, so daily attention to those meetings and getting myself ready for those meetings, making sure that the resources are what we need to make those meetings as productive as possible, setting an agenda, having them set the agenda, um, because I would say that they're the ones who have to gain from the meeting more than I do. Um, yeah. I gain a lot because then it helps me then think about how I can support them or coach them or advise them. But uh, so those are those are the important kind of nuts and bolts. Beautiful. Uh, let's talk about um, letters and messages. Uh, I am sure you have plenty of experiences sitting down uh, in your computer. You have to send a message to your staff or community. Might be something tough to share. Uh, any advice for those who are beginning and perhaps don't realize the importance that what we put in writing sticks 
and it can impact the school culture for many years. Yeah, I would say setting up a routine in your school where you're communicating weekly is important. I would say that giving information, being transparent, sending out those letters, thinking about the timing of those letters. I remember as a, a new principal, I would send it on a this date. Teachers were like, why are you sending it so late? It's too late for us. You need to send it earlier. Um, that was always important. The timing. I would, yeah, the timing is really important more than anything else. And then also coordinating. So where wherever you are in your system, um, whether you're a teacher. So as a teacher, when are you sending letters to families to, you know, um, same goes for principals or assistant superintendent or superintendents thinking about that. And then also what's the message about? So if, is it, a, is it, if your community is used to hearing from you, then you get more flexibility in how your, your messages go. Yes. Um, when you're, when you're the principal or the person who sends out more like monthly messages, then you have to think differently about each of your messages and how they're going to hit. Like you said, mm. Thank you. Being uh, such an informed person with so many diversities, have you ever thought about uh, doing a podcast? Have I ever thought about doing a podcast? I have actually. Great question. Tell us I about have. it. So I've been thinking about two podcasts, actually. So the first one is about practices that work. And so developing an opportunity like yourself I love your theme of wisdom and productivity. I want to build a podcast that's really focused on what's working for supporting black and brown children in our country and really focusing on instructional practices, core priorities, um, systems that are accelerating those outcomes. I think we spend a lot of time on what's not and what's wrong, I think it's time we start to hone in on what is. I Even in the show, you've mentioned a couple of things that I love uh, about what we can do for children who are just arriving in this country. Yeah. I think it's time that we have a show and that we all know about it where we can learn from each other and be able to, to share these practices because ultimately it, what is is going to have more impact for children than what's not. Amen. Thank you. And what is the second idea? Second idea is I is it's really about persistence and guidance. And I think when you have lived, and so I've mentioned to you my my experience as a Baha'i and that my parents, my parents are Baha'is. And so they moved to West Africa. My mom spoke French. That was a place where she'd wanted to move and be of service. And so when people move, even if it's in America, if when you move and you, you decide to do something of service to a community or take on, you go to city here, where do you get your guidance? What drives you? What sustains you in these moments um, of service? When you do something, when you enter an unknown space to you, how do you respond? What sustains you? Who do you get your messages from? And there are stories, there are hundreds, there are thousands of people who've enacted these things. And then in the Baha'i community, there are people who've committed their lives to inspiring those people. They're not priests, but they are, they're people 
who who would travel and and basically just bring encouragement to Baha'is who were living in these difficult places or in places that had no electricity or no phones. And so these visitors would go and hang and, and hang out, I was gonna say. And so I want to create a show that, that highlights that. Beautiful. It's perhaps uh, something needed that is waiting for you to do it. I appreciate your encouragement. <laughs> you are true. You are a true school leader. I love Thank you. Your, <laughs> um, I, you know, principals were a big part of my influence, and I didn't say that earlier. But I tell me, going to elementary school and high school, um, Dr. Johnson, my high school principal, he was always encouraging. No matter what, whether it was good news or bad news, he found a way to be encouraging in those tough times. And well, I remember he would always say to me, just do it. And I'd go up to him, Dr. Johnson, I have this idea. You know, junior, sophomore, and I'd go, just do it, Kelgadi, go. Andali, go do it. You got it. You know, and so we, we remember wow. these principles. Thank you. And you know, what, what, what teachers and principals tell students uh, can literally impact you for the rest of your life positive mm. or negative. There Thank you, you for sharing that. Uh, and Dalip, uh, do you have any uh, mindful activities you do in order when you take out your super cape from work uh, and from being <laughs> a, a, a family, a family in a family, uh, anything that you would like to share with us? Yeah, so I, uh, two things, I wrestle with my boys all the time. So <laughs> take off the super cape and get humbled on the wrestling floor with my boys. Um, and then the other thing that I had shared on the LinkedIn yesterday as we prepared for today was I realized that one of my routines of mindful practice is painting. I'm a painter. Um, I have been painting uh, really with a very focused attention to it for the last six, seven years. Um, I found that as I moved into my, my assistant superintendent role that I needed a more dedicated practice of painting. <clears throat> I'd drive to work and I'd see colors. Like I was like, like, am I having a psychotic breaker? Maybe, you know, but I, I started to just really see paintings and I had, I've been a painter I've been in the arts for most of my life. My grandmother really, um, she gave me my first set of pastels when I was like 13. Prior to that, she was in a ceramics class in New Orleans. She'd take me to the class with her. And so I just got to witness a lot of the value of the arts. And so anyway, so behind me actually is one of my pieces that I wanted to show. Here. Um, we can see it. Uh, I wanted to see. Let's see. The, the, the glare is a little tough. Uh, so anyway, but here, there we go. Is it how glaring? Would you describe, how would you describe this painting? Yeah, so what I would describe is that it's, this is one of my ocean water pieces that brings out, um, and I actually have a website, andalibgallery.com. So I, I don't sell anything on the website, so I'm not promoting to sell, but um, it's it's one of my works to just to share with the world. And so... But the painting that you're seeing behind me, what I do in my work is I really focus on abstract expressionism, which big term for basically saying I let it flow. Right. And so I'm not typically using a image to start off of. And then I and then I just build layers and I and I focus on the use of color 
and drawing color together and seeing how those connect with each other. And um, I like the practice of, I think of it as almost like I'll start with a theme or a feeling. And so I have done a number of commission pieces and I'll say to them, what are you looking for? And they'll say, well, I love these colors. And I'm like, what's the feeling? And then I'll, they'll tell me, what are you looking for? And so then I literally, I have this almost, I don't call it a superpower. Maybe it is a superpower. I'm just going to claim it. it. It's a superpower. I have a superpower where I can almost manifest that idea. And I've tested it, actually. It's funny. I, I have tested it a number of times now where I'll have an idea. I'll, sometimes I'll even write it down. And then I'll paint it. And then I'll post it on Facebook or Instagram. And it's crazy, Dr. Martinez, to see how people's posts will be the ideas that I had in my head. Wow. Wow. And it's not like I put those words on the paper, but the colors yeah. and the way I bring all that together will manifest itself. And then people will say things like, this is what I see or this is what I feel. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was trying to evoke in people. Wow. Yeah, they been, say, that's they say that, that when you do... Um, <laughs> freestyle painting in many ways you're allowing your subconscious to drive right and that message to come across so seeing at your painting if we were in a museum gallery and people are coming and seeing how would you describe the feeling or emotion in that painting behind you and me behind me right now i would describe yes. it as uh, a deep uh, staring into uh, the the ocean, and it, it would be the ex it would be like flying over a deepest blue ocean where you would see reefs below, and you would see the dark blue areas of the ocean, and you would see the lighter blues, and you would see the coral coming through, and you would see the shimmering <clears throat> of the light of the sun and glimpses of the white sand deep below that sea. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's, that's profound. Uh, where does this vocation of doing this come from? So I'm primarily self-taught, to be honest with you. Um, I, I started painting very young, and then I have been fortunate along the way to meet some both more realistic artists, but also abstract artists. So there's an artist by the name of Hooper Dunbar, who I lived in Israel for about two years, who had a studio above where I lived. And so he had invited me a number of times and had given me feedback on my work. And then there was a famous uh, abstract artist. His name was Roger Don, Donald Rogers. And he Donald Otto Rogers. And so he had actually looked at my work and said, okay, here's some tips and given me. So my work has been influenced by both learning from others and investing in my own time and craft. And my wife, surprise, is one of my biggest fans. And so she, <laughs> so when we were dating, I was like, oh, that's right. the one fun you need. You just need that one fun for sure. <laughs> she, she's been my, uh, uh, favorite uh, fan. So, so she always, 
I always get in this, I get in trouble because I often will paint something and then she'll say, I really want it. And then somebody else will say, I really want it too. And then I'll give it to the person. She's like, that was for me. <laughs> so, so let me yeah. ask you one last question. Yes. Um, what does your wife mean to you? What does my wife mean to me? She means strength. Um, she's my partner in crime. I. She helps me be a better person. She's really, she's stalwart and she's also really gentle and kind. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Andalit. This has been such a great conversation. Any last thoughts you would like to share with the listeners of the show or in the viewers? You know, I no. I mean, I, I would just say that the the practice that you have promoted, Dr. Martinez, is really a gift. And I really am grateful that you afforded me the opportunity to be reflective. Um, and I think it's it's a testament to your own commitment to self-growth and continuous improvement. And I think that the more we do that as leaders, it positions us to, to stay connected. And let's stay connected. Amen. Thank you so much, man. I hope that you have a fantastic Sunday. Now we are Me friends too. forever. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you. I hope you... Um, Enjoy it tons with your children today. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye. Take care, guys. Have a happy Sunday. Peace and calm. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparim Martinez. Chulu. And Ella's Production. Chulu out.